6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 43. Subtleties in the language demonstrate its time in history, and that's an example of it. There's all those trees exclude, if you will, trees that are outside Judea later that are brought back from Babylon and what have you. Small point. Now, I love the next few verses because it's one of these places that's, what's the right term? Sarcastic, perhaps. God challenges the evil spirits. I always enjoy these for some (laughs) perverse reason. God says, produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things and what they are, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good and do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught, and abomination is he who chooses you. (laughs) Don't have to add anything to that, do we? It's interesting the challenge he gives them to to the idols. If you're gods, tell us what's going to happen in the future. See, they can't. They can't. I'm always amused. People come up to me, what about Nostradamus, Gene Dixon, all this stuff? Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Jean Dixon's the fun one because she gets some of her uh, visions from a snake. And I said, Walter Martin used to always kid about it. Last time a woman talked to a snake, we all got in a lot of trouble. Um, (laughs) But she's credited with having predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy. That's utter rubbish. She also predicted Nixon win the election, so she re-predicted that it was Nixon that was going to get shot. Other than that, she's right on target. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Prophets of God are 100% right 100% of the time. And that's a tough record. The false prophets are right 1% or 2% of the time, sometimes. I mean, it's just a joke. And yes, I've been through some of these. I do some homework just to do the homework, but it's really boring because it's rubbish and nonsense. Most of them are so ambiguous that they're meaningless anyway. But uh, these people who make the uh, allegations, you check them out and they fall apart. No, the false prophets are just what they are, false prophets. God himself demonstrates that he is God by, in fact, describing things before they happen. He did so through history, and he does so today. He predicted not only that Israel would be regathered in the land, he predicted the very day that would be declared a state, May 14th of 1948, by analyzing Ezekiel 4 and Leviticus 26, and all through. I took you through that. It describes the exact day that Israel would regain the biblical city of Jerusalem. He describes Babylon being rebuilt. He describes Russia, the Republic of Russia, arming a group of nations to invade Israel. And they're getting ready to do that. He describes Europe emerging as the final world empire, a global empire. He describes the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's all there. It's all happening. shouldn't surprise us. And yet we watch that and it's just breathtaking. 
because God demonstrates that he's outside time altogether. He demonstrates he is who he is by calling the shots up front, precisely, to every subtle detail. He predicts the exact day that Jesus Christ has presented himself as the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the King. The very day. Jesus held him accountable to know that day. And he lays out history in detail. And what's exciting is we're watching it all come to fruition. Exciting. Back to these idols. Behold, ye are of nothing in your work of naught. An abomination is he who chooses you. <laughs> I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, shall he call upon my name, and he shall come upon the princes as upon uh, mortar, and as the potter treadeth the clay, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, he is righteous, yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your words. The first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them, I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor that, when asked, I asked of them, could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing, their melted and cast images are wind and confusion. Says it all. Let's keep moving. We're on a roll. <laughs> the uh, next four verses are quoted in Matthew chapter 12, incidentally. Behold my servant whom I behold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. It's interesting how Isaiah hammers away all through here the blessing, not on Israel alone, on the nations, on the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth justice in truth. Jesus, of course, was the servant. What Isaiah is starting to build here, again, it's like a symphony. We're introducing another theme. Softly at first, it's going to reach its crescendo in chapter 53. The suffering servant. If Israel had done their homework... They fixated on the promises of the Messiah, the king, the ruler, and they expected him to throw off the yoke of Rome. They were so fixated on it, they missed the prophecies that he was also going to show up in a different role, the suffering servant, the obedient unto death. It's all here. And in many copies of the Old Testament, they removed Isaiah 53. But if you go to Israel, to the shrine of the book they're so proud of, and you see the Dead Sea Scrolls laid out, there's the complete scroll of Isaiah, and right in the middle, guess what? Isaiah 53. It's sort of like a, you know, a symphony. You're starting to introduce another theme. It's starting to build here. Behold my servant whom I behold, uphold. And certainly he's upheld by the Father. John 5. Mine elect in 1 Peter 2, 6. Okay. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. He shall cry, not lift up, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoke fla smoking flax shall he not quench. We're talking about uh, uh, trimming a lamp. It's an idiom that's unfamiliar to us, but it has to do with feeble lights being trimmed properly. He will not burn so dimly, nor be bruised, in other words. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, he sh he till he have set justice in the earth, and the coasts shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, 
He who giveth breath unto the people upon it, and the Spirit to them that walk in it. Gives breath to the people. That's interesting. You know, most of us, I think, perceive the process of life as something he designed and organized, but it sort of continues. And as we study the DNA molecule, we're flabbergasted to discover, first of all, it's a digital code that your entire genetic history and everything about you is described in a digital code that's in every molecule in your body, in the DNA molecule. Fascinating study. But the key things you learn from that, number one, it's a digital code. Digital code implies there has to be a language designed first, and then a mechanism to embody that language and a mechanism to manipulate that language. It's like a sender and a receiver. You have to design them both before they work. Can't evolve. This cannot evolve. It has to be designed. The fact that DNA is a digital code has destroyed evolution. Any competent observer now realizes that the biogenesis is an absurd hypothesis. But it's worse than that. If you take a sperm and an egg and they fertilize to become a zygote, you look under the microscope and you watch them, what happens? Mitosis takes place. The, the two cells divide into two identical cells. And those two into four. And they're identical, right? They keep dividing. Mitosis, 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 more and more cells. But then as we watch, something bizarre happens. Up till now, they're identical. But then you start watching. And you watch this organism. You see a dark line down the middle. And pretty soon, it becomes one end becomes a little larger. You begin to realize it's a backbone and there's a head forming. And then you notice something happening that's hard to explain. The cells are splitting, but no longer identical. Some of them become a certain kind of tissue. Others, a different kind of tissue. Some end up being bone, some lung, some brain, some retina, whatever. You with me? Well, there's a problem with that. Because, first of all, who decides? In other words, let's imagine that all of us in this room were totally, completely skilled in all instruments of an orchestra. And let's assume I gave each of you a complete copy of the symphony. Would we have music? No. You need a conductor to break the ties. You also need complete communication with all the elements. And as you start studying that process, if you start studying the system engineering, you discover there's another problem. For the DNA to cause the whole thing, giving all the information to the DNA molecule doesn't solve the problem. You start mathematically modeling it, you realize there's a missing link. You need to insert information. Conflict resolution logic, if you computer guys, if you know what I'm talking about. What does it mean? It means I personally am convinced that God is involved with every cell division. He is involved with every cell division. has to be. Verse 5. He who giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk in it. There's far more going on in information science terms than the biologist can possibly comprehend. Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and those who sit in darkness out of the prison house. Yes, it does sound like the Apostles' Creed for those of you with a denominational background. But we'll, we'll keep moving on. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
One thing on verse 8. There again, Sam intrigued. God is jealous. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, he declares in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions, the Ten Commandments. I do not give to another, neither my praise to carved images. If that's the way he feels about carved images, how must he feel about competing with nothingness, randomness, the random number generator that caused life and brought the universe into existence? It's not only irrational, it's it's insulting. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. There again, his authentication, his seal, his fingerprint on the document is his demonstration that the source of his message is outside time, outside the time domain. He is free of the constraints of mass. God is not a person who has lots of time. He's a person outside time altogether. Time is a physical property. It's a result of our mass, our gravity, our acceleration. It's 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 a physical property. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song in his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is in it, the coasts with their inhabitants. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, shout. The word is roar in the King James. The word means shout. Interesting word. Shout in the voice of the archangel. Huh? He shall prevail against his enemies. And does he have enemies? You bet. And Isaiah will picture him in chapter 63, bloodstained, having fought with his enemies. I have for a long time held my peace. I have been still and restrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. The day of the Lord It's coming. It's not far away. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up their herbs and will make the rivers coastlands and will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make the darkness light before them and the crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in carved images, that say to the melted images, Ye are our gods. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for a prey. And none delivereth for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? I love that we. It's interesting. We notice it in Daniel and we notice it in Isaiah. We also notice it in the prayers of Ezra in chapter 9 and the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9. So the identity of the prophet with his people. Did Isaiah sin? He's pretty high ground. Access to the throne. A man of God. And we could build up Isaiah. But yet, no, no. He includes himself with his people. We have sinned. Whatever Israel was guilty of, Isaiah felt guilty of. I'm reminded for some reason of the Jerusalem uh, Peace Congress 
back uh, 79, 80, something like that. And of course, the church for 19 centuries is called the Jews, the Christ killers. And Chuck Smith made one of the keynote speaks. He says, you want to blame someone for the death of Jesus Christ? Blame me. It's my fault. It was my sins that put him on the tree. See, we need to remember that. We have sinned. Continuing, for they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew not. And it burned him, yet he had laid it not to heart. Chapter 43. But now, thus saith the Lord who created thee, O Jacob, and who formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. That's exciting, isn't it? Now, he's speaking about Israel here, but there are passages where he says the same thing about you. If you're in Christ, you're his. Boy, what security there is in that, to be his. Knowing that, you can take them all on. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Interesting word in Isaiah, isn't it? How many times does it appear? The number of Christ is eight, new beginning. How many times does the Savior appear in the book of Isaiah? Eight times. What a coincidence. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopian Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. <laughs> Interesting. It's happening. Every available plane is loaded a thousand at a time. They're not built for that. They strip the seats and load them with Ethiopians from Ethiopia or Russians from Russia pouring into Israel. A thousand at a crack. God is doing it. He is saying to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and from my daughters from the ends of the earth. It's happening. And as, just as Ezekiel said, they're initially being gathered in unbelief. But there's an event that's about to occur that will shock them back into a recognition that God has once again got his hand upon them. Verse 70, Every one who is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Interesting verse, because we're in Genesis chapter 1, we make a big thing of the word for create is bara. Barashith bara Elohim, the heavens and the earth. Bara, to create out of nothing. Another Hebrew word is asa, to be formed and made. Another one is made, yet, sir. This verse has all three verbs in it. I've created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So he'd taken all three Hebrew verbs and cornered the market. Verse 8, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen. Notice again there's the duet, isn't it? That ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Jesus said so in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, right? There's no other name 
under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. If there was any other way, God didn't answer Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, sweating as it were drops of blood. And what did he pray? Father, let me off the hook. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, oh, what an important word. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not once, three times he prayed that. If there's any other way for you and I to be reconciled to God, then God didn't answer his prayer. And worse than that, he died in vain. That's the only way. Strange idea, but God's declaration throughout the scripture. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, the whole Gethsemane experience, and many other places. One approach, one way that God has chosen to reconcile us to him so that we might have fellowship with him. From Genesis chapter 3 to the end, it's all an undoing of this mess that we're in, this predicament that we're in. God allowed it to happen so that he could demonstrate his infinite love. That's what we really are about. Ephesians 2 verse 7. I, even I, am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have shown when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work and who shall hinder it? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon. I have brought down all their nobles and their Chaldeans whose song is in the ships. Very strange allusion to Babylon because Babylon had not risen to power until a century later. Strange, isn't it? His readers must have been really puzzled by this stuff. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, who maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. There's that phrase again. I'm always intrigued by this. There was a young man who heard this and also the same ideas in the Psalms. The fact that there's a path in the sea. What a bizarre idea that is. He was so fascinated that it was in the Bible that he set out to find the pathways in the sea. And he uh, devoted his life to gathering data. He had ships, merchant ships in all kinds of all countries start to gather temperatures and things. He pulled out all that data together and mapped the currents in the sea. If you go to the Naval Academy and you march from Bancroft Hall down Stribling Walk to the Academic Group, the main building of the Academic Group is Murray Hall, named after James Fontaine Murray, who is regarded not just in the United States but in all major countries as the father of oceanography. I knew that as an Academy guy, of course. I didn't find out till later that he did that. He committed his life to that because he noticed in the Bible it said there were pathways in the sea, and he set out to find them, and he did. Interesting. Thus say the Lord, who maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who bringeth forth the chariot, the horse, and the army, and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as a wick. Remember not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert to give a drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Praise. What's the Jewish word for praise? Judah means praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. 
Thou hast not brought me the sheep of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast burdened me with thy sins, and thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Rather interesting contrast, isn't it? You haven't done me any of this homage. What you've brought me is your sins and your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. The first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the prince of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. Well, our time's up, so we'll stop at the end of chapter 43. We'll pick up 44 next time. Chapter 44 is going to be fun. We've got the promise of the Holy Spirit coming here. It builds up. Same style, but it builds up to one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible. And I want you for next time to do a little homework. When you get a chance, read sometime this between now and the time we get together again. Read Daniel chapter 5, the story of Belshazzar and the fall of Babylon. And in, in Daniel 5, you'll get the perspective from the Babylonian side. In chapter 44 and 45, we're going to recount the remarkable career of one, most, one of the most interesting men of history, a guy by the name of Cyrus. God writes a letter to him 150 years before the fact and recounts his career and the strategy by which he conquers Babylon. We're going to go through, we'll go through that next time. One of the incredible, incredible passages. And uh, there's much more, of course, in chapter 44 and 45. Uh, chapter 45 will also give rise, in verse 18 to the, a passage from which emerges the conjecture of what some people call the gap theory of Genesis 1. So we'll use that as an excuse to explore that a little bit. Uh, a highly controversial viewpoint, but one that's very provocative, and we will deal with that also. So next time's going to be a full plate. Should be fun. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.